Welcome back to the JPO Podcast. I am Carter Clement, one of your hosts and a pediatric orthopedist at Children's Hospital in historic Uptown New Orleans. Today, we'll kick off part one of our coverage of the journal's November-slash-December print issue, and we're excited to bring you three interviews with guest authors. So to start things off, I'll hand things over to one of my co-hosts, Craig. So welcome again, everybody. Uh, This is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina. I'm here to discuss uh, our next article, which is entitled Pediatric Septic Arthritis of the Knee, Predictors of Septic Hip Do Not Apply. This is from lead author Mitch Obey and senior author Puya Husanzada from Washington University in St. Louis. I'm actually joined on the line by Dr. Husanzada. Um, so welcome. Thank you so much, Craig, for having me. Appreciate you being here. Um, so this article concerns validating clinical algorithms to help predict septic arthritis. So uh, we know that a lot of work has been done in differentiating pediatric septic hip from other hip pain etiologies on the basis of presenting factors in labs. And the foundation of this work has come from Dr. Coker and the Boston Children's Group, who published a few landmark articles um, years ago. And they had found high predictive value of four clinical factors. That's white blood cell count over 12,000, ESR over 40 millimeters per hour, non-weight-bearing status, a fever greater than 38.5 degrees centigrade. And then there's been an addition of CRP greater than 20 milligrams per liter, um, which is considered the modified Coker criteria. Um, that was an addition by uh, Dr. Caird and colleagues. So this study uh, looked at a large population of children with confirmed septic arthritis of the knee who were treated at St. Louis Children's Hospital And then went back and asked, how predictive were these five factors in these cases? So again, um, thank you, uh, Puya, for being here. Um, I'd like you just to maybe comment briefly on the main findings of the study. When we uh, went back and looked at uh, what we uh, call Coker criteria for these children, realized that actually over uh, over 50% of uh, the kids who have confirmed septic arthritis of the knee have uh, three or less of the Coker criteria. And if you compare that to the uh, hip population, that number for the hip population is over 80%. So that actually tells us that the clinical algorithm that we use for septic arthritis of the hip do not apply actually to the septic arthritis of the knee. And if you are gonna use uh, that criteria, you'll be missing about 50% of the septic arthritis of the knees. Yeah, that's a little scary. Um, what was your impetus for doing this study? I mean, were you just suspicious that septic knees in general presented differently, or is it just that you were tired of WashU residents constantly uh, misquoting the Coker criteria for knees? So I think part of it is actually a lot of people, not only residents, talk about Coker criteria when they see patients that you know with the infection in other areas of the body or septic arthritis in other areas of the body. And I think early on when I started in St. Louis, I did actually have one patient who uh, was uh, seen initially and we had very low concern for septic arthritis of the knee and she came back a couple of days later and was actually down. And when you initially looked at her presentation, I mean, she may have only had one or two of that criteria. So that was actually the main uh, reason I started uh, thinking about the study because I realized that if you rely on those criteria, you can easily miss this. And I should probably clarify for our listeners, I'm jokingly poking fun at the residents there because I was one. Um, so uh, as you also point out in your manuscript, uh, St. Louis Children's and the institution has previously kind of played spoiler for this clinical prediction algorithm 
with Dr. Lumen attempting to validate it in an independent population. So it was validated at Boston, but they took that criteria and applied it to the children in St. Louis. And they again found only 59% positive predictive value, which was compared to the 99.6% in the original Coker study. Um, so is there something not just different between hips and knees, but something different between Boston children and St. Louis children? Uh, for any clinical algorithm that you look at, it, it depends on your patient population. And of course, when you're looking at infection, it depends on the bacteria uh, that you're uh, you know, dealing with and uh, you know, what bacteria that actually cause your infection. So I think any criteria that you develop uh, for infections is going to be regional. It's going to be hard uh, to apply, you know, nationwide or even internationally, as uh, you have, uh, you know, seen that Dr. Coker has uh, proposed an algorithm for differentiating MRSA versus MSSA uh, osteomyelitis that were perfectly in Boston. But when they try to actually uh, replicate that for uh, the Children's Hospital of Phoenix, I believe, uh, it did not apply at all. So I think it, it all depends on, uh, you know, the bacteria that you're dealing with and your patient population, which of course varies within uh, different geographic locations. Yeah, that's a great point. As a takeaway for our listeners, if you uh, if you have these children come into the ER with, uh, with an anea fusion, you know, what would your approach or your recommendation be on the basis of this paper? Typically, what I rely on is that if a patient comes with... Uh, painful knee range of motion and with knee effusion and they have some uh, some of the markers actually even one of them that is elevated maybe even uh, elevated ESR or CRP they should have uh, an aspiration done to allow an infection. Well um, Dr. Ujanzada thank you again for joining me I really appreciate your time and uh, appreciate your the work that you and your co-authors did on this article. Thank you so much Greg my pleasure. Thank you Craig I guess there's no easy way around aspirating those suspicious knees. Next, we've actually got a throwback article from last month's issue. Your co-host, Julia, was able to sit down with one of the authors, Dr. Shore, who joins us for his second appearance on the podcast. We're glad they were able to get together, and they were actually at the OTA annual meeting in person, so please pardon the background noise and commotion. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here live at OTA with Dr. Ben Shore from Boston Children's Hospital, who will be sharing the results of his study, Recovery of Motor Nerve Injuries Associated with Displaced Extension-Type Pediatric Supracondylar Humerus Fractures. Dr. Shore, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Julia, for having me. Uh, the OTA has been a great meeting, and uh, tomorrow we have our Cortices Annual Meeting, which will also be very exciting. Awesome. Well, first, I'd like to say thank you for investigating nerve injuries in this population. Uh, this is definitely something that all of us in pediatric orthopedics deal with on a daily basis, and it's nice to have some literature to guide our decision-making. Um, could you tell us how your question differs a bit from what's already been published? Sure. Uh, I think it's, you know, I think the biggest challenge as practitioners is when to intervene when you see a supracondylar humerus fracture that has a nerve injury. And the goal of this paper was really to try and help characterize a large cohort of patients and try and identify when should you pull the trigger and do something more than just watchful waiting. I think the challenge is, is that the natural history suggests that you know all or most nerve injuries get better with time, but the real question is there isn't a lot of literature to support that. And the majority of the papers that have been presented with nerve injuries have very small numbers of uh, patients, 
approximately 30 to 60 patients. And what was unique in this cohort, it was a, a much larger uh, sample of 244 patients with traumatic nerve injuries. And so because we had such a large number, we could do much more sophisticated statistical analysis to help answer these questions for our clinicians that take care of this problem. That's so great. Um, so would you summarize for us what you discovered in your search? So I think there was a couple different goals for the study. So the, the primary goal of the study was to report kind of how nerve injuries present. It's particular, we're really we're looking at extension type three supercondylar humor fractures. So how they present, what was the treatment and outcome uh, in a large single center. And then our secondary goals were to determine which injury and treatment characteristics were perhaps associated with more of a prolonged uh, nerve recovery. Uh, and I think the highlights really um, are, you know, based on our multivariable analysis. And so what we looked at was we saw that in general, most nerve injuries do recover by about six months of age. And so I think that's a helpful timeline in terms of how to guide managing a child after surgery that has a persistent palsy that, you know, a good percentage got better by three months and almost all of them got better by six months. So six months is a pretty good timeline to hang your hat on uh, to guide yourself in terms of recovery. But what was really interesting was in the multivariable analysis is that when you had multiple nerve injuries, it took about twice as long to recover than a single nerve injury. In particular, the median nerve is the most common and it actually tends to heal the quickest. Um, surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, the radial nerve uh, took about 30% longer to heal, and we suspect that that's a slightly atypical fracture pattern, and so there's probably more force and a greater degree of stretch that tends to answer that question. Um, and then finally, we felt that like, when we looked at our analysis, immediate decompression really didn't benefit the results of our nerve recovery. However, the study wasn't really powered to answer those questions. So I think those are kind of like some of the big highlights in terms of uh, the multivariable analysis. Great, that's so helpful for practicing orthopedists. Um, so one more question, I, I think concomitant vascular and neurologic injury is always a big concern. Um, what did you find regarding vascular injuries in your study? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that this was a, you know, this paper actually has a lot of information uh, distilled within it just based on the sample size. And I will preface what we found based on the fact that, you know, we're fairly aggressive at Boston Children's. We have a robust hand team uh, that supports all the uh, on-call surgeons, and many of us are very comfortable with opening supraconular humerus fractures and looking at the neurovascular structures, and I think that's based on the experience that we get from our hand colleagues. Uh, but what we found in our study was that almost 30% of the cohort of 244 presented with some degree of a vascular injury at the time of their nerve injury presentation. And the majority of those were the pink pulseless hand, which we're all very familiar with. About 60 of the 70 patients presented with that. Um, the majority of those pink pulseless hands, about 70%, uh, did fine with the closed reduction, percutaneous painting, and careful monitoring but the remaining 30% required an open reduction. And, and these 30% required an open reduction for various reasons, which is not surprising. So 
uh, a small number had a change in perfusion after the pinning, a small number had an open fracture, and then a small number had uh, neurovascular uh, compromise. So whether that was uh, adventitia that was draped over uh, the neurovascular bundle or whether the neurovascular bundle itself was actually caught within the fracture type, that made up kind of about 10% of the population. In the cohort, what was interesting is there were six patients that had a cold ischemic hand. All of those had an injury to the brachial artery, whether it was a laceration or thrombosis, and all of them required a formal repair. Uh, so I think those are the things that we, uh, we can draw from the vascular injury. I think the vascular injury uh, can happen. I think we're instructed that the majority of them get better with time, and I think that is a good, um, a good thing to kind of hang your hat on, but there are cases that don't get better, and if it's really truly an atypical exam afterwards, those should be explored. That's perfect. Um, so now that we know a little bit more regarding the expected timeline of recovery for some of these nerve injuries, can you share with us how you uh, personally counsel patients and families regarding nerve injuries? So, um, you know, I think it goes back a little bit to um, the results that we talked about at the beginning. Uh, so typically, if a child has a post-operative nerve injury, um, I think it's really important to correlate that with their preoperative exam. And I think it's challenging, you know, and this is where I think you really need to stress to the residents and fellows to really document a good exam when you come into the emergency room so that you know whether there's been a real acute change or whether this is truly uh, a neuropraxia that's been present right from prior to surgery. But in the majority of these cases, it is a neuropraxia. And I counsel the families that we're gonna watch this and we should start to see some improvement in sensory function and motor function at three months and usually a complete improvement uh, at six months. What was interesting in our study is that many of the kids who had residual deficits had complete motor function with altered sensory function. So I think that the motor comes back before the sensory and that makes sense if you think about how the nerve reinnervates itself. Within the cohort, there were five kids that did require secondary surgery for nerve injuries that did not recover. Um, and all of those underwent pretty significant uh, nerve procedures. They either had cable grafting or tendon transfers. Uh, it's important that none of those kids actually had a decompression at the time of their initial surgery. And clearly within the cohort, there are some kids that have a true hit to the nerve related to the injury that they uh, sustained. Perfect. Well, I think that's all really, really helpful information for all of us. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Julia. This was awesome. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Julia. To round things out for the day, we'll now go back to Craig for a second article and interview, this one covering Ortolani positive hips and how we may be able to get away with slightly more lenient protocols than a lot of us may be used to. Greetings, everyone. Next, we're going to discuss an article entitled, a comparison of pavlic harness treatment regimens for dislocated but reducible Ortolani positive hips and infantile developmental dysplasia of the hip. This is from lead author Adam Hines and senior author Harry Kim from Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas, Texas. I'm joined today via phone with Dr. Harry Kim, who has graciously agreed to come on the podcast and discuss the article. Dr. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, so in the way of background, just to get us started, so the pelvic harness we know is widely used for the close treatment of infantile DDH. However, for the Ortolani positive hip, i.e. dislocated but reducible on exam, there are really no comparative studies looking at the regimens of pelvic harness wear initially. 
So this study sought to determine whether the amount of pavlik harness wear, comparing full-time versus 23 out of 24 hours, and the number of follow-ups within the first four weeks really makes a difference in the success of pavlik harness treatment. So Dr. Kim and colleagues, they did this via retrospective review of their prospective hip registry of patients less than six months old and only Ortolani positive hips were included. Um, they went back and looked at the clinical success, which was defined as obtaining a concentric reduction on exam without advanced treatment, as well as radiographic success, which was S-tabular indices within two standard deviations of normal at two years old or greater. And then they did a sub-analysis to see whether the harness regimen, um, in terms of how often they're wearing it, or the frequency of visits end up making a difference. Um, so again, Dr. Kim, thanks for being here. Could you summarize the major findings of your study for the listeners? Uh, so what we found when we did this uh, retrospective review was that it actually didn't uh, show a difference between those who started with 23 hours versus 24-hour wear of harness for the Ortolani positive hips. In terms of the clinical outcome, which is no need for doing closed or open reduction uh, as a result of a failure of the harness, uh, and the radiographic outcome, which is a two-year follow-up uh, measuring the ASAVR index, there was also no, uh, uh, no difference. By and large, all patients uh, treated either way uh, and as well as uh, less frequent follow-up had uh, a good result. I think our success rate was over 90% in terms of clinical success, uh, and then radiographic success was uh, 84%. Well, that is a really impressive rate of pelvic harness treatment success. Um, what was your motivation for performing this study? Yeah, so uh, when I trained in Toronto, the regimen that I was uh, taught was 24 hours a day and uh, weekly follow-up uh, for every, you know, every week. Uh, three to four weeks. So that's what I practice. And I've been at Scottish Rite for now uh, over 10 years, and I about uh, nine to 10 surgeons uh, actually regularly treat uh, infantile DDH. And I found that some of us were actually doing a more lenient regimen, you know, that uh, includes 23 hours right from the beginning, and also uh, clinic visits, uh, not weekly, but maybe, you know, uh, uh, two or maybe even uh, three times over the four-week uh, period. So I was uh, curious to see if there was any difference. And my bias was that, you know, obviously my regimen was better and we would have a higher success rate or those uh, with more lenient regimen would have uh, higher failure rates. Well, you must have been pretty surprised to see that uh, both ended up being equal, at least in this study. Um, what limitations should we be aware of when considering these results? It is possible, and in a retrospective study, that it, sometimes this uh, kind of information is hard to decipher from chart review, that some of these patients with more severe um, you know, dislocation may have been treated uh, you know, with uh, more frequent follow-up and so on, so that the end result may be the same, but it, it is also possible that those with uh, more severe disease uh, was in the uh, more frequent follow-up and uh, uh, longer duration of harness wear. That we don't know. And we also didn't monitor the uh, uh, compliance to the harness wear because we currently there's no good clinical way to uh, measure that. There's no established method. Uh, my, my experience was like yours in training. We did full-time brace wear. This was in, in San Diego. Uh, for Ortolani positive hips. Um, 
And so did this study then up changing your practice now that you've got these results? It has changed my practice that I'm no longer the uh, dogmatic uh, 24 hours a day, you know, every week visit uh, for four weeks. I'm uh, sort of in between so-called lenient and traditional um, uh, protocol where I actually, once I see that the hip has stabilized and usually most patients will respond within one to two weeks, then I, uh, I become more lenient in terms of the harness wear as well as the uh, follow-up. Well, let me ask about the parents' responses. Now, we didn't really do patient-rated outcomes uh, in this study, but um, do you have a sense of now that you've kind of gone both ways, what is the response of the parents? Do they like the additional freedom, or does it make them nervous? I think to most uh, parents, I mean, what's the most important thing is the outcome and the, you know, the, that their uh, infant's hip, uh, you know, become normal. Um, and some of the potential inconveniences are not as uh, important immediately. Uh, but, but, you know, one of the motivation is, like, it, it is uh, somewhat challenging, you know, after having a newborn to come every week and, you know, how... Uh, the appointments, you know, you have to wait and also the having to wear the harness where you can bathe and, you know, you can't have, uh, you know, skin contact without having the harness. Those are uh, potential sort of uh, negatives and that may hinder, you know, bonding and that, that sort of uh, experience of having a newborn. So I don't, we haven't measured it, um, but I, I would think that obviously parents would be happier not to have to come every week. Um, well, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I would say, could you just maybe for our listeners as kind of a takeaway, you know, what would, what would you say your main takeaway is from all this in terms of how it should affect their practice? What should they be going out and doing differently, uh, if anything, at this point? So I, I think the uh, most important thing is that we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't uh, practice with this dogma of that, you know, you need 24 hours a day of harness uh, with follow-up every week. I think really should be based on um, the response of the uh, uh, infant to the harness treatment. And if you are able to establish stability, then uh, I think uh, we could decrease the, the number of, or we could go from 24 to 23 hours where, and uh, uh, you could sort of spread the, clinic visit uh, a little more so that it's more convenient for the uh, for the parents. Right. Maybe less cumbersome for you. And although yet to be proven, maybe better appreciated by the families. Um, yes. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Kim. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us the insight. Um, hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Craig. It was, uh, was my pleasure. Thank you, Craig and Dr. Kim, for a very practical article. I look forward to putting that into use. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. Please subscribe if you have not already. And we look forward to bringing you part two of our coverage of the November-December episode in the coming weeks. 